Just about two weeks ago uh, was Kate's birthday on May 11th, so you can mark it down in your calendars and go over next year. <laughs> we, Kate and I don't eat out often, so we wanted to find a place that has a cool atmosphere and high quality food to, to meet the special occasion. So after some research, we found a new restaurant in Avon that we hadn't tried before. And they have somewhat of a diverse menu, uh, but their featured item becomes very clear when you sit down. It's steak. This is a steakhouse. Uh, now, you can at this restaurant, they have probably about 15 different kinds of steak. And the highest quality is, I think, their Wagyu steak. I don't know if you've heard of this before. Wagyu steak comes from Japan. Uh, apparently, they treat these cows like royalty because they charge a royal price for a Wagyu steak. So scared off by that number, I got the cheapest steak of any, uh, which is probably a nice steak at most other restaurants. So, you know, you can't rush perfection, so we waited a while for our food. But when the waiter finally brought us our food, there was something that he didn't do. Now, it's not because he forgot, because this guy is a top-notch professional, very sharp. At most restaurants, especially steakhouses, when a waiter brings you your food, after they set it down, they normally ask you, do you need anything else? Do you need, especially with the steak, do you need A1 sauce? Do you need seasoning, salt and pepper? Our waiter did not ask us that. There was not salt and pepper on the table. There was not A1 offered. And that's by design. Do you know why it's the design? Because at a place like that, the steak is meant to be perfect as it's served. If you add things on top of it, what you're really saying is that the steak itself is insufficient and the cook doesn't know what he's doing. If you add your own seasonings and toppings, you might very well ruin the steak. Meant to be enjoyed as it's served. And that blesses those who eat it. They don't have to worry that the steak might lack something. They are meant to sit back and enjoy the steak as it is. We pick up Paul's letter to Titus in chapter 1, verse 10. Paul wants to help Titus build healthy, gospel centered churches on the island of Crete. In this section, Paul addresses an obstacle that works against that goal. There are those who add their own toppings and seasonings on top of an already perfect gospel. When people add to Jesus, they imply Jesus isn't enough. There's something insufficient. As many others have observed, when you add to Jesus, you actually subtract from Jesus. Because when you add to Jesus, the focus is no longer on enjoying him as he is. Instead, the focus is on external behavior that we put on top of his finished work. Paul warns Titus that this gospel of legalism is no gospel at all. It makes people pure externally while leaving them corrupt internally. And where to sum up Paul's instructions to Titus in this portion of his letter, it would be like this. He tells Titus, keep people sound in the gospel by keeping them away from teaching that adds to Christ's work 
and teaching that reduces following Christ to external behavior. If you're not with me there yet, join me in Titus chapter 1, verses 10 to 16. You'll find it around page 998 in the Bibles provided. Uh, after we're done reading, I'm going to say this is God's word. If you agree, would you say thanks be to God? Okay, Titus 1, starting verse 10. There, for there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their words. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. This is God's Word. Thanks be to God. Last time we were in Titus, uh, we read Paul telling Titus to uh, put everything that, uh, into order that remained out of order on the island of Crete. And the main prescription Dr. Paul gives Titus to put things into order tells him, get good pastors in place in the churches across this island. And not just any kind of men to put in as pastors. He tells them specific kinds of men. Titus, put pastors in who love the truth about Jesus, who know the truth about Jesus so well that they are able to teach it to others, who love and cherish the truth about Jesus so much that they defend anything that contradicts the truth about Jesus. Today, in this section, in this paragraph, you notice that uh, the very first word of it is for. It links back to what comes before it. This is the main reason why churches in Crete needed pastors who could bring order. The main reason is that there are new teachers in Crete who brought chaos, who were doing damage. So, Paul instructs Titus about these teachers, telling him what to do about them. And he describes them. So for our time together, we'll organize it under two big headings. First, the problem. It's the bulk of our time. And, and as we unpack the problem, we'll do what amounts to basically a profile sketch of these teachers in Crete. And the second big heading for our time is the response. How does Titus respond to this problem? So first, this profile sketch. Uh, we're not going to do this in strict order of the passage. Instead, we'll lump Paul's description into several different categories. So think of it like a witness who has seen a crime and actually seen the perpetrator commit the crime. The witness then goes into the police station, and he doesn't have a picture of the perpetrator, but he can give a description. And then these people who, I don't even know how they do it, these criminal sketch artists, after hearing the description, they can piece together details and give a clear picture. That's kind of what we hope to do this morning. So what are some of those details we can piece together to get a clearer picture of these teachers and creeds? Well, category one, it's pretty general, who they are. Now, admittedly, we can fit a lot under this category of who they are, but we're not talking yet about these teachers' actions. We're not even talking yet about their beliefs. 
talking about the general descriptions Paul uses of them, even some adjectives Paul uses to describe them. So a lot of these come in the bookends of this paragraph, the general descriptions and the adjectives, who these teachers are. So verse 10 and verse 16. Verse 10, Paul says, they are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers. They especially come from the circumcision cult. That word insubordinate could also be translated as rebellious. Paul uses this same word back in chapter 1, verse 6, to describe some children. So putting those together, we can see these teachers are not subject to the church's authority. They rebel against the church's teachings. They are out of line with the church's norms. It's like Paul's clarifying to Titus right away. These guys aren't, aren't on your team right now. They're insubordinate. They are empty talkers. It's like he's telling them for all of their talk, as impressive as they might sound, as persuasive as they might be, their words are empty. The way a grandfather would put it, maybe, is they're full of hot air. They're insincere. And more than just being empty, they are deceiving. They are misleading, even deliberately so. Perhaps they use their Jewish background to claim some kind of insider knowledge to godliness. The bottom line is, they may talk a big talk, but they are not who they appear to be. As Jesus puts it, that we read earlier, they are like wolves who wear sheep's clothing. That comes up again with the general descriptions and adjectives in verse 16. Who are they? Paul says they are detestable. They are disobedient. They are unfit for any good work. Backing up just a little bit to verse 15. They are defiled and unbelieving. All of these descriptions we're going to find are really ironic given what, they, what these guys claim to be and what they teach. This is how Paul describes them. Just a couple more observations about who they are. Not their character, not their nature. I want you to notice their number and their location. It might be easy to, look, to overlook, but in verse 10, Paul says there are many of these troublemakers. And in verse 11, these many troublemakers, Paul says they upset whole families. The word family can also be translated as household. Just a, a little background on this. Since churches usually met in houses at this time, biblical authors often describe churches as households or families. So this means that these troublemakers are not just out there in the world. They are located inside of the church. Paul expects Titus to deal with them directly. This is a little bit of who they are. Now, right out of the gates, I want to be clear about what we're, how we're trying to respond, even in little ways. I want to be clear on what I'm not trying to do. We're talking about false teachers. It is not my goal to make you paranoid. <laughs> it's not my goal to make you always worried about these kinds of people. Neither is it my goal to make you cynical, to assume that everyone isn't who they appear to be. Neither is it my goal to make you proud to develop an attitude that everybody else is like this except for us, we're the only ones who really care about it. Instead, I want to join Scripture's emphasis and make you aware and make you humble. Brothers and sisters, we shouldn't be naive and act like there aren't false teachers, even 
even today. But neither should we assume we are invincible against their influence. If I had a wager a guess, I would guess most of us, myself included, spend much more time on the internet and on television than we do in our Bibles. Not that either of those are automatically bad, but your time spent on them means that there are values and narratives contrary to the Bible that are in front of you all of the time and probably influence you in more ways than you realize. So, who are these troublemakers? They are teachers with a Jewish background who aren't as they appear to be. Second category of our profile sketch. Let's focus on what these guys teach. At the most basic level, verse 11 says, they teach what they ought not to teach. Something about these guys teaching undermines and contradicts the gospel of Jesus. And Paul lays out this gospel in many places, including Titus chapter 3, verses 4 to 6. You can look there, you see preview. There, Paul says that God is the one who saved us, not ourselves. God saved us from our sins by his grace, not because we earned it, but because he freely gave it. God saved us from our sins by faith alone. We receive it, again, we don't earn it. And he saved us from our sins in Christ alone. Christ has done the work, not us. Anything that adds to that gospel, anything that contradicts that gospel, ought not to be taught, Paul says. But what are the specifics of that teaching? Paul doesn't give a ton of details in this paragraph, probably because Titus already knows the details. But Paul does give some details. So in verse 10, for example, Paul says they are from the circumcision party. Now, this doesn't mean that they throw circumcision parties. <laughs> Maybe, I probably wouldn't go to one of those, but they, it means that they emphasize circumcision. This misplaced emphasis pops up throughout the New Testament, but it stems from Old Testament background. And so in the book of Genesis, God tells Abraham to circumcise his male descendants. It was a physical display that they were set apart for God. But even from the beginning of God's instructions to Abraham, God indicates that the outward sign of circumcision should represent an inner reality of a circumcised heart. So as we'll see, these troublemakers in Crete, like so many others, emphasize the outward reality and forget the inner reality. So uh, these teachers in Crete, they teach that for Gentiles, that is the non-circumcised, to come into the church, yeah, they need to believe in Jesus. But for them to be really godly, for them really to belong, for them really to be accepted, well, then they got to be circumcised too. These guys teach an additional requirement of the gospel. You get more details of what they teach in verse 14. Verse 14 tells us the basis of their teaching. We see the authority that they appeal to. They appeal to Jewish myths, and they appeal to the commands of men. Paul doesn't say what myths they are. He doesn't say what commands of men they are. It really doesn't matter all that much because they appeal to myths. They're not appealing to the truth. They appeal to the commands of men. They're not appealing to the commands of God. It might remind you of how Jesus indicts the Pharisees in Mark 7. He notices how the Pharisees are extra scrupulous about all these little details of life, but they treat their parents like garbage. 
And he tells them, you guys leave the commandment of God and hold to the traditions of men. Maybe just a brief application, friends. Be, be extra careful with teaching that sounds or claims to be new, to be novel, and to be original. We are really not trying to be original at West Creek, like so many other, we, we hope, faithful churches. We want to teach the same gospel and the same Bible that the church has believed for 2,000 years. There are those who will endlessly pursue what's relevant. Here we want to stand confidently on what's permanent. So here's what we've seen, what they teach. These guys teach the additional requirement of circumcision. They teach based on faulty authorities. Verse 15 shows that they teach external regulations. External regulations. Paul says, to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. It's kind of Paul's way of saying, these guys have a rule about everything. It seems like Timothy dealt with similar teachers in the city of Ephesus. Paul says in 1 Timothy 4 that these teachers there do things like forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods. These teachers are confused who require these external regulations. One pastor helpfully explains, he, he says, sex and food are not corrupt in themselves. We are the ones who make sex and food corrupt when we use them in sinful and selfish ways. It is not that we are corrupted if we come into contact with sex or food. Rather, sex and food are corrupted when they come into contact with people with impure hearts. Things like sex, food, and drink are pure when we view them as good gifts from God and use them for his glory in accordance with his word. In other words, along the lines of what Jesus said, the problem is first with what's inside of us, not with what's outside of us. That's the corruption we should be most concerned about, the corruption that is in our hearts. Give me a good chapter. Again, Jesus talks about this in Mark chapter 7. Chapter to read this afternoon. So these teachers who emphasize external regulations get it backwards. They become pure externally but corrupt internally. So this is how they this is what they teach. It leads to our next category: how they act. You want to figure out who somebody is? You gotta to listen to more than what they say, you gotta look at what they do. So our third category of our profile sketch: how they act. People say that actions speak louder than words. I guess that's true. Maybe we can narrow it a little bit. I think a better way could be that actions either confirm or deny our words. So these troublemakers' actions definitely deny their words. They tell a much different story from what they say and what they teach. That's the bottom line Paul arrives at in verse 16. Notice there, Paul says, they profess to know God, but deny him by their works. As you probably have said before, they talk a big talk, but they do not walk a big walk. They profess to know God, but deny him by their works. This, this won't come as a surprise to you. Not everyone who claims to be godly is godly. Not every Bible teacher who uses a Bible verse is a faithful Bible teacher. 
not every persuasive voice is a sincere voice. Our actions either confirm or deny our words. How do these troublemakers act? Going backwards from verse 16 to verse 12. Verse 12, Paul says, these troublemakers act just like the rest of the people in their culture. He says, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. And notice it's not Paul who says that. Some, he's quoting somebody else who says that. Somebody from Crete. Most scholars say it's this guy named Epimenides. I feel bad for his teachers who got to call his name growing up. <laughs> Paul's agreement with Epimenides' assessment doesn't mean that Paul hated the Cretan people. In fact, he sends Titus there to plant gospel churches to the Cretan people. He loves the people of Crete. But it says that Paul is simply honest about the Cretan people's behavior. They are people who are dishonest. They are people who are harsh. People who are selfish. They care only about their individual agendas. They will bite and snap when they perceive a slight or a threat. These people are materialistic. They are consumeristic. They never have enough. They are obsessed with consuming more and more. And the more they get, the bolder they become and the lazier they become. This, this letter could not just be to the Cretans, it could be to the Americans. Going backwards still, how do these troublemakers act? From verse 12 to verse 11, these troublemakers act out of their greed. We highlighted this last week. Notice what's not their motivation for their teaching. It's not that these guys sat down one day and did an academic, thorough, and honest study and said, we've come to a new conclusion. We're going to start teaching a new thing. No, you know what's the motivation behind their new teaching? Money. Christian hip-hop artist Shai Lin says this in his song, False Teachers. If you come to Jesus for money, your God isn't Jesus. Money is. In his short book, Does the Gospel Promise Health and Prosperity? Available in the Resource Center. <laughs> Pastor Sean DeMars writes, There is a problem with thinking God wants to bless you with material prosperity. The problem is that it values God's blessings more than God himself. It teaches people to love the gifts above the giver. The Apostle Paul writes to his other protege, Timothy, warning him about the motivation of greed. 1 Timothy 6, he says, Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. So how do these guys act? Just to review, they act in a way that does not align with their words. They act in a way that does align with their culture. And they act out of their greed. That's their central now, I hope you're getting a clearer picture so far. I hope it's coming together in our profile sketch. But there's one last component I want to point out. That's the effect that these guys have on the church. I spot at least three effects in these verses here. The first comes in verse 11. What effect do they have on the church? Well, Paul says they are upsetting whole families. That word for upset means to jeopardize someone's inner well-being. 
way we might put it, they make people uneasy. They make people stressed and worried and anxious. Makes sense. If you constantly emphasize all of your rules and external regulations, pretty soon people just won't be able to keep up with you. They'll always feel like they're not doing enough. They'll wonder, does God really love me? Has God really saved me? Do I truly belong? Now, just to clarify real quick, I'm not saying that obedience doesn't matter. Paul talks about the new kind of life we should display as Christians. In fact, just a couple verses earlier, he upholds the virtues of uprightness, holiness, and discipline. But the clarification is Paul knows those virtues flow from a heart that's already been saved that's already been changed, that's already been declared not guilty and not condemned. So let me think about those in the Cretan culture who, who sin in the same ways of verse 12. For those kinds of people, added rules aren't good news. They're added burdens. Colossians 1.23 says that self-made religion has no power to stop the indulgence of we don't just need more rules. We need a new heart. The good news is that Jesus died so that, we, so that he could forgive us of our sins. And Jesus rose so that we could be freed from our sins. We don't just have new rules. We have new power and new freedom. So this means we can say, more than, we can say to people more than just don't live like that. We can say to people, you don't have to live like that. There is freedom and there is something better. What, what kind of effect do these guys have on churches? The second effect they have on the church comes in verse 14. Verse 14, Paul says, they get people devoted to Jewish myths and they turn them away from the truth. To use our analogy earlier, they get people to stop enjoying the steak. Instead, they just focus on the toppings. But I think it's even worse than that, though. It's like they switch out the steak for a counterfeit meat, like Burger King's Impossible Burger. <laughs> it is an inferior burger. <laughs> Again, I want to be nuanced and clarify. There are many good gifts in the world that we could be interested in and curious about. There are even thinkers and authors outside of the church that have insights to offer. Paul quotes one of them. But consider this, what we should be the most devoted to is not myths, is not the commands of men, it's the word of God. Good old Charlie Spurgeon said this, visit many books, but live in one. Maybe thinking about our context, I'll address both the right and the left so that everybody's mad at me. <laughs> you should be more devoted to the Bible than conspiracy theories. You should be more devoted to the Bible than critical theories. I bet if more Christians were, things wouldn't be as crazy. And there wouldn't be so many led astray. There wouldn't be so many like those described in Ephesians 4 verse 14 tossed to and fro by the waves, and carried about by every wind of doctrine. The third effect these guys have on the church comes in verse 16. 
They make people unfit for any good work. They make people unfit for any good work. This is the irony of legalism. These guys have all their rules, they have all their regulations, and yet they're the same guys Paul calls detestable and disobedient. How does that work? We talked about this a little bit on Wednesday nights. It's because they treat their relationship with God like a checklist, as we were saying earlier. And these guys got a long list too. There are all the things that they're not going to eat. There are all the things, all the times they're going to pray, all the things they're not going to do, all the times they're going to show up at church. Check, 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 check. The problem is, once you've checked off everything, or think you've checked off everything, then you go right back to living how you want to live. You you use your big long checklist as a subtle justification of doing things you know you shouldn't do. You have your big long checklist, so it's okay if you have a short fuse with your family. Your checklist doesn't address that. You have your big long checklist, so it's okay if you're dishonest at work. You've done your big long checklist, it's okay if you overspend and you're not greedy. My friend, do you treat your relationship with God like a checklist? Maybe that you're a Christian who needs an adjustment, or it may be you've identified as a Christian, but you've never really understood what it means to live the Christian life. Here's a problem. When, when you treat your relationship with God like a checklist, a few results can happen. Either you end up feeling crushed under the list's demands, hence verse 11, upsetting whole families. Or if you treat your relationship with God like a checklist, you deceive yourself. That you're meeting the checklist and doing enough. You make the checklist easy to make yourself feel better and to make you feel better than other people. If you treat your relationship with God like a checklist, your relationship with God will become hollow and self-righteous. But with either result, whether you're crushed or too lifted up, a checklist Christian ends up overly focused on themselves. Not on Jesus. Checklist Christianity reduces godliness to outward behavior. It aims for appearance, not for substance. We're not looking for Christianity that fits neatly as one category of our lives and then we can put it away and forget about it. We're looking for a Christianity that permeates every category of our lives, not just our quiet times and our religious times. This is how the Bible always talks about it. As a matter of fact, what would you say is the most famous list in the Bible? Don't think too hard. Ten Commandments? Yeah, I would agree too. <laughs> the Ten Commandments upholds this same teaching. The Ten Commandments, the order, is really important. The first commandment is the first commandment for a reason. It's placed there purposefully. And remember, you shall have no other gods before me. That is not an action. That's not a state of behavior. It's a state of heart. It's a state of heart. If when you worship and love God alone, two through nine are going to follow. And if any part of the other list of two through nine are out of place, it's because the first commandment isn't in place. Jesus makes Jesus makes us fit for every good work. 
not because he polishes our polishes our exterior. Rather, Jesus gives us a new interior. He overhauls our engine. He gives us new hearts with a new capacity and a new drive to love God. That's the central promise of the new covenant. Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 34 and 36. A new heart with God's rules stamped on it, not new rules without new hearts. So there's our profile sketch. We've seen who these troublemakers are. We've seen what they teach. We've seen how they act. We see the effect they have on the church. But, and more shortly, how should Titus respond to this problem? Well, Paul gives them two commands. First in verse 11. He tells Titus they must be silenced. What does Paul mean by that? It can sound like Paul's going T-1000 Terminator on these false teachers. He's targeting and eliminating his enemies. I want to tell you what Paul's not doing here when he says they must be silenced. He's not saying you need to shut down any kind of debate or any kind of questions or even any kind of charitable disagreement in the church. He's not saying that. In fact, we see Paul have disagreement with Barnabas in Acts 15. Paul corrects Peter in Galatians 2. First and second Corinthians are pretty much letters all in response to questions. Neither is Paul saying they must be silenced out of some sense of ego or competition. Paul doesn't feel threatened by these new and upcoming teachers. He regards himself, remember, as a mere servant. Paul is even training new pastors to replace him. So this instruction to silence these teachers, it comes out of Paul's love for Christ's gospel. Paul knows that a changed gospel is a powerless gospel. In Galatians 1, he says a different gospel is no gospel at all. It's not good news because it cannot save. This instruction to silence these teachers <clears throat> comes out of Paul's love, not just for Christ's gospel, church. The people who are under Paul's and Titus's care are people for whom Christ shed his own blood. So part of what it means to care for Christ's flock is to feed them Christ's word, but also part of what it means to care for Christ's flock is to protect them from predators. It comes up very clearly these guys are doing active harm in the church. So to silence these teachers most likely looks like the process of church discipline. Paul lays out elsewhere. The churches in Crete need to make it clear to these teachers that their conduct and their teaching are out of line with the gospel and not representative of a Christian. So at the very least, this would ban them from teaching in the church. It would likely ban them from taking the Lord's Supper and perhaps even ban them from attending. Like we said earlier, it's not Paul's goal to make us paranoid or cynical or proud. Rather, I think that the goal should be we should love and defend both Christ's gospel and Christ's people. Maybe a good posture for us to have is Romans 16, verse 17. Again, the Apostle Paul writes, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Paul tells Titus to respond in another way. It comes in verse 17. Paul tells him to rebuke them sharply. The big question is, who is the them that he's talking about? Is the them the troublemakers, or is it 
the people the troublemakers are influencing? It could be both. But I'm persuaded it's the troublemakers. That's who he's been talking about. It doesn't appear that he's switched and stopped talking about them. So if that's the case, if Paul's talking about the troublemakers, think about what he's saying to Titus. It's like he's saying, Titus, these guys are damaging the church. Either you've got to get them to stop teaching or you've got to correct them and win them over. This means that although Paul corrects the false teachers, although he pulls no punches in describing the false teachers, he still has a heart for these guys. He wants them to be sound in the faith. Brothers and sisters, this is so foreign to our world today. We are too busy owning and dunking on our opponents to have a heart for our opponents. Consider what Paul says similarly in 2 Timothy 2, verses 24 to 25. He says, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. rebuking or correcting so that people will be sound in the faith. Here's what that could look like in the church. I just want to put some flesh and bones on it for us. Maybe one story from the Bible. I'm thinking of a place from Acts 18. I think what this could look like in the church is if more people are like Priscilla and Aquila and more people are like Apollos. So in Acts 18, there's this very brief story, and it tells, it, it introduces us to Apollos, who's this young, up-and-coming, hotshot teacher. He's from Alexandria, Egypt. That's where all of the elites are from. This boy is an Ivy Leaguer. He's as Goodwill Hunting says, wicked smile, as those in Boston said. <laughs> Luke, the author of Acts, calls Apollos eloquence, competent in the scriptures. Where I mean, Paul planted all these churches throughout the Mediterranean, but Luke never calls Paul eloquent or competent. But Apollos is. Although Apollos was eloquent and competent, he only knew about John's baptism, that is John the Baptist's baptism. So Priscilla and Aquila hear Apollos teach one day, and after he's done teaching, Luke, the author of Acts, writes that they take him aside and they explain to him the way of God more accurately. That's a good example of how to correct. They don't embarrass Apollos. But at the same time, they have heart enough for the truth and for Apollos himself to explain. They're not elite Ivy Leaguers. Priscilla and Aquila are working class tent makers with Paul. And yet they know the truth well enough to explain it to Apollos. I'm sure there might have been an awkward conversation, but they were willing to have it. But then think of Apollos himself. Think of what he could have responded to them. He could have said, who are you to talk to me like that? You know the response that I've been getting from my teaching? I know way more than you do. No, Apollos listened. For as eloquent and competent and successful as he was, he was not too proud to receive teaching and correction. So the bottom line is, friends, there, there are going to be false teachers in the church. There will even be inaccurate teachers in the church. So how should we respond? Well, we need to be ready to protect the church protect the gospel. We need to be ready to correct teaching. And we might even need to be ready to receive correction, too. 
We do this all for the sake of Christ's gospel and Christ's people. Now, in conclusion, um, you want to know something that keeps me up at night? Well, whether or not you want to, that's up. <laughs> I worry about how our time together, especially when we're under the word, 40, 45 minutes-ish, I wonder how that time can somehow outweigh all of the influence that comes at us the other 167 hours of the week. How could this time possibly outweigh that? Well, there are a few things that help me sleep. One is that my job as a pastor isn't limited to this time. The other is that this isn't, God willing, the only time you read the Bible. The other is that maybe you should turn off some of the things that influence you. But the thing that helps me sleep the most is that it doesn't all depend on pastors. God may be gracious enough to use, to use us to help others, but the way that Christ's people will finally make it is because of Christ himself. I think of verse 10, when Paul says, there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers. Well, there are still many people like this. We are warned about those who would seek to snatch us away, but may this warning drive us to the shelter of our shepherd. May we hear and listen to our shepherd's voice in his word and go to him often. And yes, while we may stray, while we may sin, for those who are truly part of Christ's fold, this promise remains true that Jesus said in John 10, that he gives us eternal life no one will snatch us out of his hand. So as we say stay close to the gospel, we trust that Jesus will keep us close to him. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, our call to persevere, our call to be discerning, could not happen apart from your spirit working through your word. So Lord, please give us eyes to see and, and minds to understand and, and hearts to love and cherish that we would be devoted to your gospel by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, in accordance with scripture alone. And God, that you would protect us from things that would take us away from that gospel, that you, you would make us aware and humble about all of the influences that would seek to undermine this truth of life. Please help this church do that, and Lord, our only hope to stay close to you is if you keep us close to yourself. So please give.